0: of the movie brats podcast i'm carter and joining me as always is jonathan how are you doing jonathan
1: i'm in self-quarantine like everyone should be uh are you pretty much doing that too
0: pretty much doing that watching a lot of movies watching a lot of tcm i just finished watching the apartment on tcm so i'm juiced up and ready to go to talk about movies
1: well, I am not really watching that many films just for fun, but I'm rewatching stuff for class and seeing things for the first time. Like, I know this is shameful because we both graduated from NYU, but I actually just watched last week for the first time in its entirety, Battleship Potemkin. Oh. I had never actually, <laughs> it's and it's crime. amazing. <laughs> yeah, um, but uh, just some other ones I've seen recently. Uh, I saw All About My Mother, huh? uh, Pedro Amadovar's film for the first time, and then I rewatched The Exorcist. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Mm. Rashomon. Um, Let's see what else. Oh, I watched um, Speed, which uh, kind of connects to. It's not on my list, but we're going to be doing our top five feature directorial debuts, Mm. and then our top three final film debuts. Feature. I know the 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 criteria. Yeah, the criteria is that with the. Uh, first list with the top five is that it has to be a feature, meaning 60 minutes or longer, and it has to be actually their first film. So, example, Shaun of the Dead does not count because that's technically a second film. Uh, Welcome to Dollhouse is Todd Salon's second film. One I really would have put on the list, and it's sometimes you look on IMDb and you're like, what is this movie? Uh, like, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is technically Toby Hooper's second film because he did something called Eggshells that, like, isn't available to watch anywhere. I don't know what it is. It's like one of those things. That one of those lost any- films. I know. It's like it's a movie that nobody can see. So uh, these are all movies that are. Uh, their feature debut and then the last one is that they have to the director has to be no longer living huh. so we're not going to count like oh they the haven't Irishman. made a film in 20 years <laughs> yeah. yeah uh hopefully none of these you know after we get through all this virus i hope that no one like scorsese or coppola or yes. well no anyone dies but uh i i i'm it's probably going to happen that there'll be one or two big directors that die from it well let's cross our fingers and hope that does not happen And begin
0: our countdown to the top five. Do you want to start? Because I started last time.
1: Okay. So my number five film I think is one of the funniest films ever made. It's Rob Reiner's This Is Spinal Tap. Ah. uh, Which is one of – it's not the first mockumentary ever. Another mockumentary in a way that is also a great directorial debut is Albert Brooks's Real Life. And also, this is kind of a cheat, but Woody Allen's first real film that he directed all himself is Take the Money and Run, which is also a mockumentary. But I'm going to put Rob Reiner's This is Spinal Tap, which uh, stars and is co-written by Christopher Guest and also stars Harry Shearer and Michael McKeon. It's just a brilliantly crafted portrait of this fake metal band. Which seems like it might be a real band. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, there were stories about screenings of the film where it was about 20 minutes into the movie before people realized that it wasn't a real band. (laughs) And the movie is under 90 minutes. And they shot tons of footage. Like the ratio of how much they shot and how much is in the final film is ridiculous. And one thing they did is there's all these – uh, deleted scenes that you can watch but they deleted any scene in the movie where it wouldn't have kept the reality of it being a documentary like there's scenes where they're doing drugs but see if it was a real band they wouldn't have allowed yeah. it to be in the documentary so they keep to the strict rules of you know what would be in a documentary uh-huh. and the movie is just brilliant screamingly funny it's just the songs are dead <laughs> on i mean yeah they seem love, like, like they
0: might be real songs by a really bad metal band,
1: right like sex farm <laughs> big bottom and tonight we're gonna rock you tonight <laughs> um and it has so many great people pop up in small parts there's fred willard there's ed bagley jr a lot of people that christopher guest uh, went on to use in his movies um there's bruno kirby mm-hmm. So many funny Billy people Crystal. pop up. Yeah, Billy Crystal. Mime is money. <laughs> and uh, it's just such... I mean, they're, they're, I mean, I could just quote randomly. Well, Rob Reiner is
0: very funny himself. Is like the, the filmmaker in the movie.
1: I know. You get the famous, this one goes to 11, where the <laughs> amp is... All the knobs go up to 11. And he's like, well, why don't you just make 10 a little higher so they all just go up to 10 and guest pauses. Well, this one goes, goes to 11. <laughs> I know. And I love the little finger food in the backstage and he's like talking about how the bread is small but the meat is big and he's like Will you fold the meat he says, but if I keep folding the bread he said no well don't fold the bread he's like it's what... and he brings a little and I don't want a little sandwich it's just one of those endlessly quotable films and it's just it really is one of the funniest movies ever made and mm-hmm. I mean Rob Reiner had been in our consciousness for uh over 15 years because of all in the family mm-hmm. and his father was Carl uh, Reiner and he's still alive he's 98 now I mm-hmm. uh, had a birthday last month but uh, this was actually his first directorial uh, achievement and I mean you, we we were talking about doing a list of uh, best four films in a row I mean Rob Reiner had an incredible string in the 80s and early 90s mm-hmm. with I mean I might be skipping somebody of this is Spinal Tap and When Harry Met Sally Stand, and by, me. Stand by Me Princess Bride yeah. Princess Bride yeah so but the started out with I would say I mean we could talk with each of these films I think that this is Spinal Tap is probably his best film he's ever mm-hmm. made it's certainly to me his funniest film so it's this so is original
0: and a lot of people have tried to do mockumentaries but nothing achieves this is Spinal Tap's level of it where and I and all of the people involved with it are like actually somewhat gifted musicians like Michael McKean and Christopher Guest like can play their instruments that they're playing in the movie
1: Oh, yeah. And it's just the way that they capture the the band. Oh, another great set piece is uh, Angelica Houston playing the woman who makes the Stonehenge uh, <laughs> stage. Uh, you know, it's supposed to be this giant band. Uh, piece of scenery and it's supposed to be certain feet tall and and he did the inches and so (laughs) they yeah so yeah i just don't i don't want to go through every joke that makes me laugh but there's just it's from being a movie that's like 84 minutes long my goodness it's one of the funniest movies ever so if you haven't seen it um i also have to say that uh i i adore christopher guest's movies like Mm -hmm. waiting for guffman and best in show but uh, Rob Reiner directed this. is Spinal Tap. It's one of the funniest movies ever made. So that's my number five.
0: That's funny. That was that was one that I didn't even think of. So, I mean, I don't I don't know. I don't think of it being a Rob Reiner movie, which it obviously is. It's just Christopher Guest. I think of it as a Christopher Guest movie, and he didn't direct it. So very good of you to include that.
1: Well, sometimes it's like we've had this thing before. There are great sports films, and then there's great films that are about sports. Like mm-hmm. there are films that are. Like, this is a great directorial debut, and then this is a great film that is this director's first film. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, yeah. that is sort of exactly how I'd put it. Like, one when, when that isn't on my list, but another of the funniest movies ever made is Airplane, mm-hmm. which was the directorial debut of all three of them, Jim Abrams and David and Jerry Zucker. But I don't think of that as being like, oh, this is a great directorial debut as much as it, it's just a great, great comedy that happens to be the first film of all three of them. Mm-hmm. So what's so,
0: your number 5? My number 5 is just about as opposite on the spectrum as a movie could possibly be. We go from one of the funniest, most joyous movies ever made to maybe the most dour movie I've ever seen is Hunger directed by Steve McQueen from the year 2008 about Bobby Sands, a political prisoner from the Irish Republican Army in the 1980s who decides to go on a hunger strike to gain political status for him and his fellow IRA prisoners. And the movie is basically his decision to start the hunger strike and then the complete deterioration of his body as he undergoes his hunger strike. It eventually dies. It is a very, very bleak movie. But Steve McQueen, this was his directorial debut. And after he made this, I was like, this guy is going to be one of the best directors we've ever seen. And his next couple movies, Shame, uh, also starring Michael Fassbender, which this is also the first movie I ever saw Michael Fassbender in. And after that, he became one of my favorite actors. And then he. You yeah, had did... seen
1: *Inglourious Bastards* before. This came
0: that? out the year before *Inglourious Bastards*.
1: Oh, okay. I and I was, I, like, and I was,
0: and I saw this like the year it came out because I was very intrigued by the trailer. And then, sort of funny personal anecdote: I was watching this when it was on Netflix in 2010, my freshman year of college, while my roommate was trying to take a nap, <laughs> and he was just like, "Jesus Christ, what are you watching?" And I was like, "Oh, it's *Hunger*. It's really, really good." Uh,
1: well, but, I actually saw Hunger with my mom, and I saw Shame in a theater with my mom. Oh my it would be about a sex addict. <laughs> but um, yeah, Hunger is – I think it's his best film actually. 12 Years a Slave I is think incredible. I so yeah.
0: And 12 Years a Slave went on to win Best Picture. But I don't, yeah, it's, it's hard to think that he has improved on Hunger, which was his first movie. And obviously Shame and 12 Years a Slave I also consider two of the best movies to have come out this century. And then Widows, which came out two years ago. Was a slight disappointment. It was a movie I was looking very much forward to, but was very different than his previous movies because there was a real austere naturalism to *Hunger* and *12 Years a Slave* and *Shame* and *Widows* had that a little bit, but was a little more genre than the previous movies. But anyway, *Hunger*, yeah, Michael Fassbender was the first time I saw it, seen him in a movie, and he absolutely blows audiences away with his performances. Bobby Sands. There's one particular sequence. Uh, where he's speaking to a priest, and there's just this really extended take, which I think goes on for like 15 to 20 minutes, where it's just him and Liam Cunningham, who most people would be familiar with from Game of Thrones, just throwing back and forth at each other, acting the shit out of the movie. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know if I'll ever see a movie that impacts me on like a gut level like Hunger did the first time I saw it. It truly is an incredible movie experience, and I'm looking forward to whatever movie Steve McQueen makes in the future. I'm going to see it opening weekend, just as I did with Widows. And hopefully the next one is a little bit closer to Widows – or sorry, to Hunger and 12 Years a Slave than it is to Widows. Uh, but yeah, my number five, uh, Steve McQueen's Hunger.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those movies that when it ends and the end credits are going, you just yeah. sit there and go, ooh. You're like, shit. <laughs> yeah, and it's just one of those – films where the lead performance is just like you you almost feel bad for the actor even yeah. though you know it's it, he's only acting but he did lose a lot of weight and yes. it's just it's such did, a it's physical... so
0: yeah he just puts so much of himself into it
1: yeah i don't know i've been a
0: little disappointed in fassbender the last few years wouldn't you say you have as well
1: assassin's creed and x-men sequels that <laughs> uh-huh. haven't been very good yeah i mean what's the last good movie he's been in i mean i don't
0: know a dangerous method maybe like it's yeah. been a little while
1: I saw. I thought the comedy western Slow West was kind of fun, mm-hmm. um, but uh, my number four film is also a uh, not a very fun movie where it's people trapped in an. Isolated location, which is good for what's going on now. It's um, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf Mike Nichols first film I thought about putting this in mind. Yeah Um, Edward based on the Edward Albee play um, This is Elizabeth Taylor Richard Burton Sandy Dennis and George Siegel. and uh, this is I don't know if it's the first one but it's one of the few films where all four of the actors were nominated and the two uh, actresses won Oscars Mm -hmm. and um this is a hell of a debut for Mike Nichols and it really when, is i mean it's he had been famous for being in a comedy team with Elaine May and not that this movie doesn't have humor in it it's it's it definitely has some um dark and uncomfortable and scathing humor in it but boy it's a dramatic powerhouse and i mean i always say that if people think that elizabeth taylor was just one of those Old timey Hollywood glamorous uh, people that didn't have actually that much talent. I mean, she is incredible in this film, and she just this is like the perfect piece of uh, performance to show someone to prove that she actually was one of she was the real deal. Mm-hmm.
0: And I, I I don't know I love any movie where they're in it together, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. They're I don't know it seems like any time they're on screen together they're just gonna like knife each other. Uh, oh. in this whole movie it's just back and forth and richard burton anytime he says something mean you're like oh that's the meanest thing anyone has ever said
1: <laughs> i um actually just got i've been ordering a bunch of films on blu-ray and i got the film boom which is probably you know the worst film they made together but It's based on a Tennessee Williams play, and Williams said it was the best film that had ever been made based on one of his works, and like nobody except him and John Waters thinks so. (laughs) It's a uh, huge—John Waters is a huge fan of that film, and it's a kind of campy mess, and I I love Boom, but Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is just such a—it's just such a showcase for the actors, but it's uh, also—it's like— it might be the best film adaptation of a play That's I'm not counting like Shakespeare, but mm-hmm. like a one, you know, almost the whole film is set in one location in yeah. the house. They do go out to the bar, but um, and it's shot by uh, uh, Haskell Haskell Wexler, Wexler one of yeah. the great cinematographers of all time. Right, and this was at the time where most films were in color, and mm-hmm. it was only, like, a few were hanging on. Like, if you're going to make a serious drama, you sometimes would keep them in black and white, and this is just such yeah. a evocative—I mean, it's it's one of the great examples of how to translate a one-location stage play onto the screen.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, some of the black-and-white photography is incredible. I watched this pretty recently, and there's one scene where the one change of a location where they go to, like, a roadside bar, and— just it's between Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor and it's just it's just so amazing. Haskell Wexler just he does miracles when he has the camera with him. And one thing about this movie that I really like is that it does not sort of treat the audience like it's stupid. It really sort of counts on the audience to be paying attention and remember most lines of dialogue. And it it does not serve you what's happening on like a silver spoon. It really makes you have to be invested into the movie and be paying attention to what's happening. And if you are really paying attention, it just completely delivers by the end of the movie. Yeah, I mean, this is... It's one of my favorite movies of the 1960s. It was very close to making my top five, but it did not.
1: So what's your next one? My you next one
0: sort of similar in terms of being very raw and incredibly assured for a debut uh this was a movie I really really loved this director but for some reason had seen nearly every movie they've made except for the first one they made and I finally saw this for the first time last year and was completely blown away Uh, it is sex lies and videotape directed by Steven Soderbergh from 1989 uh For me, this movie is, like, a myth, almost, to like, the genius of its inception. Apparently, Steven Soderbergh wrote it on a notepad on a cross-country trip over two weeks, although he says he'd been thinking about it for a couple years before that, which, uh, I mean, he had to have, because if you just came up with this in, like, four days, like, you're the smartest person who's ever lived. This is just such an assured movie from the first moments of it where you see the the road going by in the single shot. And the performances are so amazing. I love Steven Soderbergh as like an actor's director. And S- James Spader in this movie is... <laughs> he's one of my like favorite film performances of all time. And a lot of people... Uh, what's the actress in it? Andy McDowell. A lot of people yeah. give her a lot of crap for always using the same accent. And sort of just being a pretty face. But she's exceptionally perfectly cast in this movie as the sort of innocent... But maybe not as innocent as she thinks it is Housewife. And... It's just such an unusual movie that – I know that Soderbergh says that it's like a movie made by an amateur, and if he were making it today, it would be different. But I think that's just being – him being very hard on himself because, I mean, watching this today, it's just so perfect. Um, you would probably seen this before I had. What do you think of Sex, Lies, and Videotape?
1: I've seen it before. It's been a long time, but I just remember it being very – like you said, raw, and it just uh, – it's, it's, it's a really good example of people – basically sitting in a room talking yes. and it's really well written and the acting's very good. And by the way, uh, Andy McDowell is from Gaffney, South Carolina. Look at um, that. yeah, I had exchanged with her on Twitter once and I saw her at a screening of a movie in New York city once and went up to her and say, Hey, I'm from South Carolina too. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, Soderbergh is one of the most, and I mean, when he made it, he was younger than us. He was yeah. like in his mid twenties. Yeah. I mean, he was like, you know, a little bit older than Norson Walls when he made citizen Kane. But, <laughs> yes. um, but, uh... very low
0: budget only 1.2 million dollars and i think a lot of people sort of have this as the marker of the big indie boom of the late 80s early 90s where people like kevin smith and quentin tarantino started making their debuts and you didn't necessarily have to go through the hollywood studio system so in a lot of ways this was a really revolutionary film and gave rise to independent cinema in a way that um uh, you can't overstate its importance and I, it's just so good. I, I've i hardly seen Laura Sandracamo in, like, any other movie, but if I only ever saw her in Sex, Lies, and Videotape, I'd be like, wow, that's one of our great actresses. And Peter Gallagher always seems to play himself in every movie, but, I mean, so well cast. I mean, this is just a perfect example of, of what casting can do for a movie where you don't necessarily need everyone to, like, give a, <laughs> a like, a, Daniel Day-Lewis and There Will Be Blood type performance. If people are well cast, they can just sort of be themselves and it'll really, really work. Uh, But yeah, Steven Soderbergh, one of my favorite directors. I was way too late coming to this movie than I should have been. And now that I have seen it, it is one of my favorite movies directed by
1: Soderbergh. Yeah. So my number three pick is a film that really means a lot to me. It's my favorite film of this century so far. It's uh, Charlie Kaufman's directorial debut, Synecdoche, New York. So he had written a number of films yes. and had won an Oscar for writing Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And another great directorial debut is Being John Malkovich, mm-hmm. but that's Spike Jones directing it. But this was the first film that Charlie Kaufman had written and directed. Um, and this movie is his eight and a half, his all that jazz. It's a... I, I mean, I, it's, I'm it's i at a lost words almost to describe it because I don't want it's, to, it's a really complicated Kaufman, a Kaufman-esque uh, look at an artist whose art blends in with his life and it's hard to tell what's real and what's not. It has dream logic and it's funny and it's heartbreaking. An amazing cast, the late Philip Seymour Hoffman stars in it, it has a lot of, an amazing female, uh, cast. You have Catherine Keener, Michelle Williams, Samantha Morton, Diane Wiest. And this is a movie that every time I see it, I dig a little deeper into it. And it's almost like the more that you see in it, the more obscure it gets. It's mm-hmm. like you, you, you know, you, the closer you get to it, the more, uh, Abstract it, it becomes. what you believe and what you, yeah, I just love the movie. It's, it's, Really smart and fascinating, but it also deeply, deeply means a lot to me because I saw it the year my father died. Mm. And it was interesting. I always pointed out the year it came out, it was the same year as The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, Mm -hmm. which was like this big Oscar contender that got nominated for everything. And that was a movie that was supposed to say so much and be so profound about what is the meaning of life and death and aging and I think that movie's beautifully made, but it's kind of a long snooze yeah. fest, and it's, it's a little bit like hollow at I, its core. Yeah, and it's like the only film that t- takes a short story and makes it longer <laughs> than like it, it could ever needed to be. Uh, but it, well, I do think it's funny though that I remember on Mark Maron's podcast, even though Sinekki New York's only like two hours and eight minutes long, he said that while you're watching it, like eight hours into it, you go like, "What? What? Where are we?" Um, but I do think the movie is the best, I'll say this, it's my favorite film of the century so far, it was Roger Ebert's favorite film of that decade, Mm -hmm. came out in 2008, and I just think it's a masterpiece, Uh, yeah, if you haven't seen, have you actually seen it? No, I'm very
0: negligent in that I haven't seen it, because even like a couple years after it came out, people whose opinion I respect are like, this is one of the best movies I've ever seen, and... I, it's just one of those ones for... I don't know. Maybe I'm afraid of it. Maybe I'm afraid to undertake the watching of it. Maybe that's what it is. But no, I still haven't seen it. Hopefully, it's something I remedy sooner rather than later. I know it was streaming for a little while, but I don't think it is anymore.
1: It's just... A, I wouldn't recommend watching it if you haven't seen at least one of the films he's yes. written, like Being John Mokovic yeah, or a Yeah, and he, he was
0: very well-known as one of the great screenwriters before he made his directorial debut. Like, adaptation is... For me, it's the best movie about the adapting of previous source material than anything that's ever been made, and it's quintessential Charlie Kaufman. So, I've seen I think everything that he's written, but I and I've seen the next movie he directed, Anomalisa, but I have not seen uh, Synecdoche, New York.
1: And the number one film I'm looking forward to this year, if anything gets released the rest of the year, is his film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, which is a Netflix film. So maybe it has a running time on IMDb, so maybe it will actually get released uh, sooner than we think. I think that they... I I would have the feeling that they would want to have it screen at a festival before putting it on Netflix. I think that's why they haven't just put it on Netflix during this quarantine. But uh, it's not there's schenectady in new york but it's a play on words it's synecdoche it's a word meaning uh, a part of something representing a whole or a whole representing a part for example if you see uh, a car and you refer to it as oh you have nice wheels mm-hmm. or if you see a police officer and you say oh there's the law mm-hmm. that's an example of a synecdoche so uh 2008 film synecdoche new york by charlie coffins yeah,
0: he just can't miss an opportunity to be smarter than you <laughs>
1: Yeah. Like anomalies. Like you hear that there's films that one film that was almost in my top five is the evil dead. Mm-hmm. And it was originally called the book of the dead. And the producer that came on said, don't call it the book of the dead. People think, well, they have to read. <laughs> uh, so some, you know, I, I can't imagine that the studio was too happy with a film called Synecdoche, New York. Cause mm-hmm. nobody knows what that word means.
0: Well, it notoriously lost some money, but I don't know how concerned Charlie Kaufman is with his movies making money. Uh, My number three is the directorial debut of possibly my favorite director of all time. It is Badlands, directed by Terrence Malick from 1973. I mean, we talk about assured debuts. I don't know. Terrence Malick must have been, like, born creating art because Badlands seems like he'd been making movies for like 20 years before that very famously it premiered at the same New York Film Festival I think the same week or possibly the same day as Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets which is not his directorial debut if it were maybe it would have made my top 5 but Badlands is it's one of my favorite Sissy Spacek performances and also Martin Sheen doing his best James Dean impression just is incredible and it's as far as Terrence Malick's entire filmography is concerned. It sort of feels a little different than his other movies, Days of Heaven, which came out in 1978, feels very much more like a Terrence Malick movie. And then, of course, The Thin Red Line and The the New World and The Tree of Life. It's like, wow, he's really found his style and he's making movies like nobody else. But Badlands, although it is very different than his other movies, is still very quintessentially Terrence Malick. And the score uses for this movie which has been repurposed for a lot of different materials one of my favorite movie scores of all time and uh what do what do you have to say about badlands jonathan
1: oh it's my number one so oh look at that so yeah
0: do you want to go ahead and talk about it now or you want to save your thoughts for later
1: no i'll just go ahead and talk about it i think that I don't know that it's my favorite. I think Days of Heaven is actually my favorite film of his, but it's interesting that both Badlands and Days of Heaven are 94 minutes. Oh, they're wow, just really? Over, yeah, they're both 94 minutes. And, you know, I don't mind Malick being Malick and going on for almost three hours, <laughs> but sometimes there are directors that need to be reminded, you know you can make a movie that's under two hours, yeah. Tarantino, Michael, <laughs> and, um, but. I do, yeah. It's a mix of Bonnie and Clyde, and with it's, it's like it's like that with more poetry. Not that yes. Bonnie and Clyde isn't poetic in its own way too, but it's just such a evocative film, and it's actually pretty. I would say it's the only film of his that has any humor at all whatsoever. <laughs> like no, all those other movies true. are just, it, it, not that it's like a laugh fest, but I mean, it is. just – No, I
0: mean Martin Sheen, like he does a lot of funny stuff, and. A lot of the humor that comes from Sissy Space, it comes from her narration when what she's saying is just so completely different than what's actually happening. You're like, oh, this girl is just completely naive and doesn't understand what's going on. And the whole movie is sort of pre- presented through her like teenage dream, like, oh, he's James Dean and we're just in love and we're just doing stuff people in love do. And it's like, no, he's murdering people. Like, this is not good. What's happening?
1: Yeah. I mean, if I made a list of the 20 most gorgeous films ever made, I think – Five of them would be Tenet yes. Malick films. I think I'd say uh, maybe Badlands, Days of Heaven, Thin Red Line, <laughs> The New World. You know, even though The New World is not, you know, one of my favorite Malick films, it's, I think, a flawed movie. I remember in the Leonard Maltin guide, he gave it two and a half out of four, and he said that it's like watching paint dry, but what oh, beautiful awesome. paint. <laughs> uh, I mean it is like watching paint dry but it's so masterfully it's, done that yes. yeah. Yeah. Um but Badlands You could Lands, have cut
0: 45 minutes off of The New World, I'll say that much.
1: Oh, well, I mean there are three different cuts I think yeah, in the Criterion are, yeah. Blu-ray. Um but Badlands is 94 minutes mm. and it's just a hell of a debut. Uh it's just so beautiful and it's it's funny, it's one of the only it's one of the only uh photographic uh, proof of Malick because he has a small cameo in the yes. film as the guy. So like, it's funny. People I think for the longest... use
0: the still from that is like, here's a picture of Terrence Malick.
1: <laughs> yeah, unless you're like using the handheld um, footage from him being interviewed at South by Southwest mm-hmm. by. Richard Linklater or him being caught on TMZ like those were like before that I think the only image of him hardly was just a grab of his face from the movie But yeah, isn't Warren Oates in the movie? Warren he plays, Oates plays
0: Sissy Spacek's father. Yeah,
1: right. Yeah, um, so uh, Malick's first five films are in the Criterion collection yeah um, you should watch Badlands. Yeah, Lands talk about he's...
0: great four movie stretches. I mean, Jesus Christ. His first three are, like, untouchable, where it goes Badlands, Days of Heaven. Then we get a nice 20-year wait before The Thin Red Line. But, oh, boy, what a wait, because he really comes back uh, with The Thin Red Line. With It might be my favorite movie. It's definitely one of the most influential movies in terms of my loving of film. But yeah. I don't know. Just, like, how do you th- – I mean, this obviously is very different than his movies, but – do you still see sort of quintessential Malick in Badlands?
1: Yeah the, the 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 poetic nature of it. I mean, do you think I would say? Don't you think the Coen Brothers are probably fans of Badlands and that it's influenced? Yes. So like Raising Arizona, yes. it's kind of and the narration in Badlands seems <laughs> yes. kind of similar to me.
0: Very similar, yes. Yeah,
1: even though Raising Arizona is more you know loopy and mm-hmm. uh, zany, but uh, I also think that it's just I, like you said, it's. I would say possibly Sissy Spacek and Martin Sheen's best performances. Yeah. Uh it's up there with uh, Coal Miner's Daughter for her. Yeah, and this but was
0: only her second movie, and uh, she was like
1: a teenager or in her early. She was. I think she superhero. was actually
0: like sixteen, seventeen. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but uh, boy, and I believe
0: it's... this is the movie where she met Jack Fisk, who's very famous for being the production designer for both Terrence Malick
1: and David Lynch. Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to go into my number two, and that is Eraserhead, David Lynch's director- feature directorial debut. He I thought this was going to be shorts. your number one. No, I had a, I have Eraserhead at number two. Um, this is. In a weird way, this would probably be in my top 20 most – well, I won't say beautiful films, but visually stunning movies. And I would say that if I also have my list of top films you really have to see in a movie theater to say you've seen them. Uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, Lawrence of Arabia, Gone with the Wind, and Eraserhead. Um, Also, like this is Spinal Tap, uh, just under 90 Minutes. And it's like a waking nightmare. It's it
0: truly black is. and
1: white. It's black and white. There's uh, only, I would say, 75% of the film, if you add it up, has no dialogue in it. Mm-hmm. And I would call it a horror film, but it's like an avant-garde nightmare <laughs> that... It, you just have to go with it. You just have to get on its wavelength. If you go, this is weird, I don't like this, I'm uncomfortable. Well, you're supposed to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. The movie is this nightmarish portrait of fatherhood. And yes. I, I always thought it was funny that David Lynch said it was his most spiritual film. And he said that people don't ever see it like that. But he said in an interview once that he wasn't sure how to finish making the film. And he read a passage in the Bible and he closed the Bible, and he knew how to finish making a racer head. and the interviewer said, what was the passage? And he said, well, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> um, and it did take him five years to shoot the movie. He wow. got some money from the American Film Institute, where he had gone, and I know there's a shot where the main character walks through a door, and when it cuts inside, it's like a, over a year between the two shots, because they had to do it piecemeal over five years. But I just I completely understand that this is not for everyone mm-hmm. but um you really need to watch it in surround sound it's yes. one of the greatest uses of sound ever yes. you know watching it not very loud on your TV at home if you don't have surround sound it's totally different yeah you'll be and like
0: what is this what yeah. am I
1: watching <laughs> have you ever seen it in a theater that Did was the first time me? i
0: saw it no i didn't go with you but i think i went at your recommendation where they were having a david lynch retrospective at uh, i think IFC
1: is what it was I've seen it a number of times. They had a, it was a weird kind of retrospective. They had David Lynch and Jacques Rivette features paired up together, <laughs> and they also had one at the I. They, well, they frequently showed it at IFC Center because mm-hmm. it was like a midnight movie. Mm-hmm. But right. um, you know, it's not for everyone, and it's definitely uncomfortable, disturbing film. Even though it's not actually that. Violent. It's no, not it isn't. It's just very point.
0: weird, it, 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 and yeah. after
1: you leave it, you feel dirty, and you're like, "This is something that's going to haunt my dreams tonight." <laughs> but I will say that it is one of the most powerful movie experiences I've yes. ever had, and every time I see it, it just it shakes your soul, mm-hmm. and I think that it it's a really incredible example of the power of cinema and you know they're like singing in the rain is a great example of the power of cinema in its way Mm -hmm. but in a dark nightmarish you know horrifying way eraser head is one of the most powerful pieces of cinema i've ever seen and i think it's um i mean i i'm in the cult of david lynch and Mm -hmm. i think it's one of his best films and it's certainly one of his most pure uh works of art that he's ever made
0: yeah, this is one where if you know, if you grew up liking films and wanting to be someone who knows a lot about films, A Razor Head is always one that you hear about, and I'd like write about it for the first time when I was like maybe fourteen or fifteen, and I read the plot for it, and I'd heard people talk about it, and I was like, "What does see the poster? Yeah, and I was like, "What does this even look like? What does this movie even look like? And then I went and see it, and I was like, "Oh, it looks like this. This is insane. This is completely different than even I expected. And I heard it was very different. I mean, it is about as unique and singular of a movie as there can possibly be, and there have been a lot of very unique and singular movies. David Lynch really is that much of a visionary, and he directed, produced, and wrote this, which is uh, similar to Badlands, which Malick directed, produced, and wrote. I don't know. It's hard for me to imagine someone like giving funding to this movie where you have David Lynch in a meeting and he was like, Oh, it's it's about this guy and he's in this weird industrial town and what happens to him, Oh, you know, he has a baby with this girl and then he goes through some stuff and you're like, So what happens? It's like, Oh, you know, you'll see when you see it. I mean, it really is just completely different than almost anything you'll ever see and I mean it came out in nineteen seventy seven, but it still feels very vital and I mean, it feels very contemporary for as weird as that sounds for a black and white movie from 1977. And yeah, it was David Lynch's first movie and it really signaled him as one of the true auteurs in, in all of movies. And auteur theory is something that a lot of people say like, oh, you know, is the director really the author of a movie? Well, for Eraserhead, I mean, it really could not have been conceived or shot by anybody except for David Lynch.
1: Well, let me throw in a funny story. Another film that was high on my list that didn't make the top five is Mel Brooks the producers oh. along with Airplane and This is Spinal Tap, one of the funniest movies ever made. But when Mel Brooks was he was a producer on The Elephant Man mm-hmm. and he had all these people, the screenwriters, and they were gonna make the Elephant Man and david lynch was going to direct it and he was like well who's this david lynch and he said well he's made one feature film before called eraser head and so they set up a screening and david lynch was outside chain smoking and he was just like there's no way they're gonna let me direct this victorian biopic you know and and an you know, oscar
0: movie basically from' yeah. was supposed to be like a best picture nominee
1: I know, And so he was pacing outside and after the movie was over, Mel Brooks burst out of the theater doors and he ran up to David Lynch and he hugged him and he said, you're a madman. I love you. You're going to direct the elephant man. And he said that he was like Jimmy Stewart from Mars. Um, So uh, David Lynch's Eraserhead is uh, one of the most original films, one of the weirdest films ever made. Uh, Absolutely. But extremely
0: gripping. And you uh, you may, from hearing us talk about it, be like, "Do I really want to see that?" Yeah, you really want to see it. It really is worth seeing.
1: But it's one you have to give yourself over. You have yes. to. I mean, I recommend waiting to see it in a movie theater. No, that's or probably movie. yeah.
0: That's probably a good shout. Like, it's not one you want to watch in your living room where you have certainly on a laptop with like headphones. That. No, yeah. definitely. not. Although headphones, if you were to watch it, watching with headphones would be better than watching it without.
1: Surround sound, yeah. <laughs> well, what's your number, uh, next one? My
0: two? number two is, I think, considered by many to be, if not the most influential movie ever made. Certainly one of the most influential movies ever made. It is Breathless, directed by Jean-Luc Godard from 1960, which was probably not the first French New Wave movie. I think Hiroshima, Mon more and uh, 400 movie, blows yeah 400 blows which was another movie i was thinking i was thinking about sneaking in another movie and making these tied at number two but i was like i probably shouldn't do that two weeks in a row so breathless by jean le godard is my number two and this this was a movie that sort of took a little while for me to come around uh on it the first time i watched it i was in high school and I think watched it on one of those sort of illegal streams that one can find because I kept hearing so much about Breathless, Breathless. What people say this is such a great movie. So I started watching and was like, "Is this really the movie everyone says is so great? It's like black and white. I don't know what's happening. This weird car chase is going on. Is this really the movie everyone says is so great?"
1: But then it's one.
0: If you, well, if let, you... Me,
1: let, let me say, I uh, Leonard Malton has said this on his podcast. Never go into a movie going. I've heard this is the greatest movie ever made because it's always going to be disappointing. <laughs> That's I mean, probably true. Yeah, it's like it's it's your setup for failure if yes. you watch Citizen Kane for the first time, saying, "Oh, this is the greatest film I've ever made." Prove me wrong, you know. Yes. So, but uh, I actually just saw Breathless a few uh, weeks ago because I taught it in my international film class and I had seen it, you know, two or three times mm. before, but. Yeah, go ahead with what you were saying. I mean, yeah, if
0: you, if you are ever to take, like, a film history class, Breathless is one that you will most definitely watch. But if you don't watch it, then the person teaching the class is probably doing you wrong because it's sort of necessary to understand the history of film. And it, people talk about, like, Citizen Kane is different than everything that came before. Breathless is, like, truly different than everything that came before it. And
1: just, Well, I remember William Friedkin one time saying there are four films that change cinema – Birth of a Nation, Citizen Kane, Breathless, and Star Wars. Ooh. Those are the four films that he argued are like the most game-changing.
0: No, that, I mean, off the top of my head, that probably is correct, but uh, it stars John Paul Belmondo, one of the great French actors, or Italian maybe, and Gene Seberg, who I don't really American. think is that good. She is American, but she's just so like effortlessly cool with her short hair in this movie, and I don't know. The one sort of scene that, for me, just, like, makes this movie is just him and her walking down the Champs-Élysées in this single shot. I mean, the movie was, like, made on a shoestring budget. I'm pretty sure part of, like, the production story is Jean-Luc Godard was just, like, holding a camera, and he was in a wheelchair, and his friend was just pushing him around in his wheelchair. And he would, like, come up with the scenario the day they started filming, which obviously is completely different than like the Hollywood let's make everything perfect. Let's get the lighting on this woman as perfectly as we possibly can before we even shoot it. The setup takes much longer than the shooting actually takes. Breathless is just, it's, it is so like gorilla shot. It still feels very vital up to this day, 60 years later. And And you know
1: who wrote the film, the story for the film, right? I had Francois Truffaut, right? Right. That's correct. I remember this is so inside baseball, but the, pilot episode of Brooklyn Nine-Nine, uh, the characters are talking about their favorite, favorite crime films, and one of the characters says, Francois Truffaut's Breathless. And there, people went online and said, oh, uh, that is incorrect, it is a Jean-Luc Godard film. And then in a later episode, they addressed it, and they are talking about, I feel the real author of the film is the screenwriter, so that's why I said Truffaut. So even the films, uh, I, I wonder how many people watching those episodes had have ever seen the actual movie breathless, but at least it's putting into people's heads.
0: Oh yeah. We have a great cameo by another great French filmmaker, Jean-Pierre Melville as the very uh, arrogant uh, director slash author that they interview in it. But I don't know. Just like, it's, it's obviously very revolutionary, but it also owes a lot to the movies that came before it. Like the main character very much models himself on Humphrey Bogart And Godard, like as much as you would think that the person who started the French New Wave would be like rebelling against American movies, he actually really loved like American film noirs and stuff like that. And in many ways, this is a tribute to American crime films,
1: but it's dedicated to monograph films at the beginning. Yeah. And
0: also another one coming under 90 minutes, 87 minutes show everybody that you can make an all time great movie for under 90 minutes and. I'm looking at the, the Wikipedia page. It says the budget is $80,000. i am shocked that it's even that high. I guess most of that went to John Seberg to get her in the movie.
1: And do you know uh, who Goddard plays in the film, his cameo? I can't remember. I he's... He plays the snitch. Ah, it, how about you know. that? Yeah. But um, yeah, I've seen it a number of times. I taught it at Lander where I'm teaching uh, in 2018 and I'm teaching it at Upstate now. So I've seen it three or four times now. So, yeah, it's it's one of the great um, and even it's a good film that it's accessible enough that it's not absolutely baffling yes, but it's yeah. also already enough that it it's like a good uh starter for yes, classic and foreign compared
0: films. to some other john Godard movies it's very very yeah. simple and very the basic image book yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. even i mean even some he made a few years later like pierre lefou it's like this is insane breathless yeah. comparatively is very straightforward and i know what's going on but even just like the, the way it's edited like it's very famous for its jump cuts which I mean, we. I mean, I've said this about almost every one of the movies we've talked about, but it, it still seems incredibly fresh today, and that just shows you what a masterful filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard is. And it's honestly shocking that this was his first movie because it's just, it's. I mean, he truly is one of the great geniuses who's ever
1: made movies. Eighty nine, still with us. Yeah. So your so number your one number? was Badlands. Can I try to guess your number one? Ah, uh, you can try to guess. Yeah. Get tell me what decade it came out in. Ah, uh, the nineteen fifties. 1950s hmm is it an american film
0: it is an american film
1: is it set in one location and has an all-male cast
0: (laughs) yes it is
1: is it Sidney lumet's 12 angry men Uh,
0: yes it is from 1957 i honestly i was shocked when we were like looking at the like preparing for this and i was like best first feature films the fact that this is his first movie it completely boggles the mind and now, it, he had directed a lot of He had of done a lot of TV,
1: before, yeah. But as a first feature yes. theatrical film, my really. God.
0: I mean, you watch Full of Angry Men and you're just like, this guy has complete control of everything that he's doing. He has one of the great actors of all time in Henry Fonda, and he just gets an exceptional performance from him. And not only Henry Fonda, but you have like Lee Cobb and some, other, some of the greatest American actors in the history of film. And Sidney Lumet, this first-time TV director... It's just so masterful. I mean, this was a movie I watched for the first time in maybe like ninth grade. We watched it in our civics class. And even back then, I was like, holy shit, this is incredible. That I, I mean, I was shocked when I found out that this was his first movie. And even today, I mean, it's still considered to be one of the great American movies. And maybe not as groundbreaking and iconic as a movie like Breathless. But strictly from like a directorial standpoint, it's hard to think of anyone coming onto the scene with their first movie and just controlling a movie like Sidney Lumet does with 12 Angry Men. It's so economical. Like, every shot is there with a purpose, and you really couldn't cut any part out of it. Like we said about some of the Malik movies, like Tree of Life, like maybe you could take a little bit out. 12 Angry Men just, it flows so perfectly, and every moment leads to the next moment, and some of the acting performances are just iconic. They're, I mean, I say that a lot, but I mean, it really is iconic. Like Henry Fonda is like what we want all Americans to be as juror number seven. And I mean, have, did you teach this in any of your classes?
1: Not yet, but I just. I, well, actually, next week I'm teaching Network, and uh, oh. uh, which is one of the greatest films of the New Hollywood era. But 12 Angry Men is – like Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf? I don't think 12 Angry Men is based on a play, is it? It was original screenplay. A Powell play, think. I think. Oh, okay. But it's also just you, – like you want to teach it in filmmaking school yeah. to show like how to shoot a film in one location, yes. how to get performances, and just how to sh- move the camera editing. It's just – it's just masterful and it's a great and it's odd you would think a movie with an all-male cast that's set almost entirely in one room Mm -hmm. uh it it would not be a good film to show younger people to get them into older movies but it actually kind of is no it's like
0: the perfect one
1: (laughs) because it's just so gripping and yeah i and and the
0: fact that it's in the one location it doesn't feel as dated because they don't try to do any special effects or anything like that like such a I think that dates so many movies is when they do the projected background, like when people are driving, oh, like even yeah. Hitchcock movies where everything
1: is like perfect. When they do the projected background, you're like, oh, that
0: really doesn't look good. There's-
1: and yeah, and they don't do the I, the night of the crime, blah, 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 blah. and they like <laughs> yeah. do a flashback to the crime, you yeah. know, and they show interpretation. No, it's all just the men mm-hmm. discussing the trial in that room. And yeah, it's it, and that's another movie. It's just over ninety minutes, uh-huh. short and sweet. It's like you know, uh, that's it's,
0: sort of been the feature for all of these movies. But I think it, yeah. it's good for the first time director to not overreach himself. It seems keep it under two hours. If it's around ninety minutes, perfect. Great movies could be ninety minutes. They all don't have to be Lawrence of Arabia.
1: Well, I actually think this is a really a great transition to the top three final films. Can I do my number three? Because my number three is Sidney Lumet's last film, Ooh. Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, which was in an amazing year of film, 2007. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was There Will Be Blood, No Country for Old Men, Sweeney Todd, Eastern Promises, Michael Clayton, Juno, Four Months, Three Weeks, and Two Days, mm-hmm. Super Bad. I mean, on and on and on. Uh, this was his last film. He directed it in his 80s. And this is a All film. All-star cast. Oh, yeah. Like Synecdoche, it has Philip Seymour Hoffman, as has Ethan Hawke, Albert Finney, Marissa Tomei, uh, Amy Ryan. This movie feels like it's directed by someone that's half his age. I mean, someone in their th- tw- late 20s or 30s, possibly. It is just so economical. And the performances, the script, it's just a old master just, just doing a film as brilliantly as you can and it's one of his best films and it's also an example of a director making his best film in like decades probably Mm -hmm. i mean i don't think people had been talking about lumet's films for quite a while since like the verdict was like honestly maybe the last film he did that like really got a lot of attention or at least some of the films in the 80s but my goodness yeah i mean i'm looking
0: at it right now like running on empty from 1988 maybe but even so that's not the verdict
1: yeah, but Before the Devil Knows You're Dead is just, and it's such a great title. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's based, it's uh, the saying is, may you have half an hour in heaven before the devil knows you're dead. And I just, yeah, it's just a, a master going out on one of his finest. I mean, he had an amazing string in the 70s, mm-hmm. but I mean, this is, you know, it, I'm not saying it's like his. Third or fourth best film ever, but it's like, it's it's probably his best film in like 25 years, and it was his last film.
0: How would you say it compares, like, stylistically to his previous movies? Because he's very much known for being a very realist sort of director. I know it uses a nonlinear plot, but I don't know. Just how does it compare to his other movies in terms of the style of it?
1: Well, it's unfussy. It's just so, like, you know, the story is told out of order, but it's just so economically told, and it's just so gripping. And I mean, I I haven't seen it since it came out in the theaters, but I just remember thinking that this is such a great film. And it's one of the films I could make a a list of movies that the only film I've seen by that director in a theater and its original release was their last film. Like I got to see... Sidney Lumet's last film, I got to see one that didn't make my list, but Robert Altman's last film, A Pray Home Companion. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, I saw that in the theater. I saw Alan Renee's last film in a theater when I was visiting New York the first time by myself. Um, and then there's some directors I saw a few of their last films, like Jonathan Demme and George A. Romero. Mm-hmm. But I was really glad I can say, like, when I'm 103 years old, I saw Sidney Lumet's <laughs> last film when it first came out. But, uh, yeah, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, one of the best films of that director's and one of the best films in an amazing year. I would say that 2007 is the best film uh, year of film so far this century.
0: It's probably the best year of film in my lifetime and a very influential – I mean I was 15 in 2007. Yeah, just so many great movies. I mean if there was any year that like hooked me as being a cinephile, it was the year 2007. Yeah, when my I said my
1: father passed away in 2008, um, the last four films we saw together in the theater were No Country for Old Men, There Will Be Blood, Sweeney Todd, and then Cloverfield, which came out in 2008, which is still a really fun yeah. movie. I mean, it's not in the same league. Very as original. I, when it yeah. came out, that was like a sensation. But um, I remember after seeing There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men and Sweeney Todd, my dad was saying – you know, I'm dying. I shouldn't maybe be watching all really, these really dark, violent movies. But I'm really glad he – I mean, I, I he was glad he saw them. Yeah. But uh, another one, uh, a movie that is uh, one that means a lot to me, uh, is one of the last movies we saw in the theater. Also, another great film from that year was I'm Not There, the uh, Bob Dylan biopic with all the people playing him. We drove all the way to Todd Asheville Haynes. to see it. Yeah. And um, But yeah, so – before the Devil Knows You're Dead, 2007, Sin Lumet. That's my number three on our top three final films. So What's my
0: your... number three is one that I know you haven't seen, but uh, this is one, you know how, like you said, you read Little Women before you saw it. You should very definitely read The source material before you read this one, because unlike Little Women, it's very, very short. It's only about 25 pages. This is what I consider to be the best short story ever written, uh, The Dead by James Joyce. I'm talking about the adaptation of that, The Dead by John Huston from 1997. I was also thinking of putting John Huston's directorial debut in my top 5 debuts when he came out with The Maltese Falcon in 1941. I don't Same know.
1: year Citizen Kane I challenge
0: anyone to have a better first and last movie than John Huston did. Uh, the Dead is it's a pretty much a perfect film and it's it's very easy to say it's a faithful adaptation because the source material is only like 25 to 30 pages but most of the dialogue they use in the film is directly lifted from it, uh, from The Dead by James Joyce. and uh, The last two pages of the short story are some of my favorite <laughs> words in the English language, or at least combination of words in the English language. So by the time you get to the last five to ten minutes of this movie, you're just like, oh, I'm just like emotionally devastated. It's just so perfect. And this is actually starring his daughter, Angelica Houston, uh, in the role as uh, the wife in this one, who's sort of the emotional key of this movie. Uh, the Dead is the final short story from James Joyce's masterful collection Dubliners, and you don't need to be familiar with all of James Joyce's work. It's not like you need to have read Ulysses and Finnegan's Wake to appreciate The Dead, but for anyone who sees it, I I really highly recommend reading it beforehand, because it I mean it truly is, for me, the best short story ever written. James Joyce is a writer unlike anybody else, and... John Huston, I think, being at his age and being on Death Store, appreciated the the material like few other filmmakers could have done. And yeah, you haven't seen it, so you can't say much about it. But eighty three minutes, another movie under ninety minutes, extremely economical. It's just it's perfect. This is just a perfect movie. Um, I mean, this might be like one of my like top fifty movies ever made, and it's one that I don't think enough people have seen. Like, is this one you think of when you think of John Houston movies? I'm sure it isn't.
1: Well, when I think of him, I think of the, one of my top 25 movies, top 50 movies, is The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yes. Um, by the way, the day we're recording this, this is Walter Houston's birthday. Oh. Isn't he in that movie? Did I make that up? He Am is in The
0: Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Yeah, He's his
1: fa- uh, his father, right?
0: Yes, and was a very yeah. famous actor in his own right.
1: Yeah, today's a crazy day. Okay, so Roger Corman, it's April 5th when we're recording this. Roger Corman is 94 years old. It's also the birthday Holy shit, Roger Corman's still alive? Yeah, he's (laughs) 94 today. And it's also the birthday of Spencer Tracy, Gregory Peck, Betty Davis, Melvin Douglas, and Walter Houston. We're all born on the same day. Um, But yeah, I need to see the movie. Also
0: the anniversary of Kurt Cobain's death. Yeah, and Charlton
1: Heston's death, but we really? digress. uh Yeah, so this is um a film. Is this I one you've been to meaning see. to
0: see? Like, is this one you like? Think of like, this is a movie I should see? Because it's for, just
1: a movie I've heard is one for of a, a lot, the, lot of people. It, I think it
0: goes under the radar.
1: Yeah, I've just heard it's one of the great final films ever, and yeah. that it's like a perfect like ending yes. to a yes. career. Talk and about it's so, like swan song. Yeah, it is perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, sometimes with directors films, it's like, you know, he probably knew that was going to be his last film. I've, yeah. Uh, if you, if I had
0: to guess, I would think so. And it's sort right. of intentionally. I mean, it's hard for me to sort of like psychoanalyze John Huston, but from watching the movie, I you sort of infer that this is a very important text to him and that this is very meaningful for this to be his last movie.
1: Right. So uh, my second film on my list is now I might be cheating because there is a film, but I don't know if it's really a theatrical film, but I'm going to count it anyway because it came out the same year as this other weird thing. But Charles Crichton. Uh, a fish called wanda oh. which is one of the funniest films ever made on imdb it has a thing called managing problem people behavioral skills for leaders and i think this was like something that showed that on does television. not sound
0: like it counts
1: yeah it's it it doesn't say it's not a television thing but um i'm gonna on, like a wikipedia it, to says be a honest, fish it sounds wanda. like
0: it's like a corporate documentary
1: I know, but um, he directed some of the great Ealing studio yes. comedies back in the 50s, uh, such as the Lavender Hill Mob. And uh, this was the last film he made in his 70s. It was written by John Cleese, uh, yeah. and it stars him with Jamie Lee Curtis and Kevin Kline. My Klein. favorite Kevin
0: Klein performance.
1: Yeah, an Oscar-winning performance, one of the few uh, acting performances to win for comedy, and uh, also Monty Python star Michael Palin. Yes. And, um, yeah, so the film got nominated for Best Screenplay, and the story was written by Crichton and Cleese. Mm-hmm. And, um, Who apparently it's just... had
0: been, like, dying to work together for 15 to 20 years before they actually ended up making this movie.
1: Right. And it's just it. it's like What's Up, Doc, in that it's mm-hmm. a film that is one of the greatest screwball comedies that didn't come out when those <laughs> fir- films first came out. It's not from the 30s or 40s, but it's just I mean – the farce of it, the mm-hmm. dialogue, the economic direction of comedy, it's like it's it's like a master class in how to yes. do fast paced, clever comedy. And it's very, very funny. There's so many great set pieces in it, so many funny lines. All the performances are just hilarious. Um, it's one of the best comedies of the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, just A Fish Called Wanda, hilarious, hilarious movie. I bet you weren't even thinking of that necessarily. Was that enough?
0: <laughs> no, I wasn't actually. But if it weren't as raunchy as it was, it really seems like it could have come out in like the 40s or 50s. The zaniness and the like nonstop element and just snowballing of it very much feels like it's a movie from the 40s or 50s.
1: And one thing that makes it connected to those screwball comedies is do you know the character's name, Archie Leach, that uh, John Cleese plays. The character's name is Archie Leach. That is Cary Grant's Uh real name. Uh And there's a reference in His Girl Friday to Archie Leach. Um, So that's kind of an inside joke. So, um, yeah, and uh, pet owners might not find a few (laughs) things in the film funny, but it is funny. Uh, I I think it's funny when all the little dogs get killed. Uh, But yeah, very, very funny movie. 1988, A Fish Called Wanda, Charles Crichton's last film. So for my number two,
0: this is possibly the most on-brand selection in any of the countdowns we have ever had as far as movies that i would like uh it is david Lean's final film a passage to india from 1984 based on the book a passage to india by possibly my favorite writer e.m forster so another literary adaptation and wouldn't you know it another david Lean movie who is my but this favorite one writer. is
1: in under 90 minutes though
0: <laughs> no this is very far from under 90 minutes this comes in at a for, as far as David Lean is concerned, a very economical 163 minutes. He easily could have made this six or seven hours. But uh, very much a return to form for David Lean. Uh, obviously most well-known as the director of Lawrence of Arabia and of uh, Dr. Zhivago from. and of Bridge on the River Kwai, which are some of the great epics ever made. But Ryan's Daughter, which came out in 1970. I'm a defender of Ryan's daughter, but for a lot of people, it's not up to his standard. And then a movie I actually haven't ever seen, Lost and Found: The Story of Cook's Anchor. I think it's a very much forgotten movie. It came out in 1979, but 1984, David Lean back with a bang, ready to rock your socks off with the literary adaptation by E.M. Forster. This is—it's a very versatile movie in terms of like educating people on stuff you could watch it if you are interested in literary adaptations. You can watch it if you're interested in colonialism and European views on colonialism and the fact that it's based on an E.M. Forster novel uh, who was very much like an Anglo-Indian lover. You can also sort of see it as like a Indian-British relations kind of movie. But for me, one of the best casts you'd find in any David Lean movie, Uh, one of my favorite actresses, Uh, Judy Davis plays Adela Quest as the main character, and then Peggy Ashcroft, the legendary British actress, was the oldest woman to ever win Best Supporting Actress when she won it at the age of 77, and then the great James Fox as uh, uh, one of the British characters, and then it would not be a David Lean movie if you didn't have Alec Guinness playing a questionable race role where he plays an Indian person. But such was the 1980s that those things were allowed to fly back in, and Alec Guinness might be my favorite actor of all time, so it's okay by me if he happens to play an Indian person. Have you seen A of India*, Jonathan?
1: No, I think the last film of his I've seen is uh, Lawrence of Arabia. I've never even seen Dr. Shivago.
0: Whoa, that's, I mean, are you, you are an avid TCM watcher, aren't you? Because Dr. Shivago is on TCM like every month.
1: And I haven't seen any of his Dickens adaptations or oh, Brief wow. Encounter. Wow. I think the only th- I think the only films I've seen of his are Bridge, Bridge on the on River Kwai and Arts of Arabia. Uh, yeah.
0: For me, he made the greatest of all Dickens adaptations. His His Great Expectations. We'll see when, when God damn it! When I see Armando Iannucci's David Copperfield, I'm not going to be able to see it in May because of this whole freaking thing. But whatever I do see, it we'll see if that compares. But for me, A Passage in India is one of the great epics ever made. Um, I'm just a sucker for David Lane. I'm a sucker for letter adaptations. So as I said before, this might be the most on-brand selection I've ever made in one of our countdowns.
1: Yeah. By the way, uh, Armando Inucci's directorial debut in the loop, one of the best comedies of that decade. Um, So my number one film is uh, a typical film for me because I messed up and disturbed is I think the best last film ever made is Piero Paolo Pasolini's Solo or the 120 Days of Solo. Truly a disturbed choice. (laughs) Yeah. Have you actually seen this movie? I'm afraid to watch it. Well, like a racer head, I mean, it's not actually that violent. I mean, really? there are some horrifying scenes and it. it's just more disturbing than okay. I mean, there is like it ends with like people being tortured. But it's like, you know, you don't really see that much. As and it far goes as by torture quickly.
0: films go, it's it's fairly light.
1: Well, yeah, it's more about just doing horrible things. So basically it's a mar- uh, adaptation Marquee of the Marquis decides, decides yeah. right? yeah and it's updated to world war Two, and you're basically watching two hours of a group of fascists kidnap some teenage boys and girls and they tell them horribly graphic sexual stories and then they Reenact them with the children and they urinate on them and make them eat feces and then they torture and kill them And it's basically that for two hours And if you google most disturbing films ever made most controversial films ever made Uh, this is going to make the top five of almost every list, Mm -hmm. but I think this film is truly an important Brilliant film that I take very seriously. I you know, there's movies like You know, the human centipede and pink flamingos that you kind of laugh at and like, oh, they're so outrageous. But this movie, I think, is a serious, serious work of art. And Pasolini, unlike a lot of the other directors, you know, this was not going to be his last movie. Mm -hmm. This was actually the first in a trilogy of death that he was going to make. He had just done the trilogy of life. Mm -hmm. He had done adaptations of famous literary works such as the Decameron and the Arabian Nights and the Canterbury Tales. And this was going to be the first in a new trilogy of death. And he was murdered shortly before the film came out oh. uh, by a gay male hustler. And like John Waters said, he died for our sins. And uh, he said, uh, Waters said before, too, that he wants his gravestone to look like Pasolini's. He, he thinks of him as a Catholic saint. Um, Do you know what the other I movies just, he was going to make were? I don't know if they decided but um you know i don't know if there're going to be other adaptations of stuff but you i would mean think so, this considering
0: is... the the train he had been on
1: right but solo is uh one of the classic films in the criterion collection and when i recommend this movie I'm saying most people should not watch it. You know, if you're someone that's like, Ooh, I don't like movies that don't make me feel good," do not watch this movie. But I think it's an incredibly powerful work of art that says a lot about uh, power and fascism, mm-hmm. and it's a very political movie. And like I said, it's not. I mean, it's not like Saw and Hostel, where like yeah, you're. It's sleeping- not torture porn. Yeah, I mean, in the last act of the movie, they do get tortured. But it's like old school, and it's like you don't, you know, it's – I'm I'm not saying it's cheesy, but it's not like, oh, my God, that really looks like someone's getting their tongue pulled out. Uh But, um, yeah, Salo is one of the great disturbing films that I think actually is a really good film. So 1975, Pasolini's Salo or The 120 Days of Sodom. So, my number one, I I don't think you've seen any of uh, my choices, and how many of, which were were your three? Count them down before I do my one. Uh, Before the Devil Knows Your Dad, have you seen that movie?
0: I actually haven't.
1: Okay, a fish called Wanda. You've seen. I have though. seen that. Yeah. Yeah, and you have not seen Salt. Have you seen any of Pasolini's movies? No,
0: it's I've it's one I really feel like I should have because he is considered to be one of the more important directors of the 20th century. So well, it, it is uh, very much negligent on my part as a film scholar to have not seen any of his movies. And,
1: It's ironic that the guy who made Solo uh, made the best Jesus film ever, The Gospel According to St. Matthew, Mm -hmm. which even though he was an atheist, a Marxist, and homosexual, he made this very sincere, reverent Jesus film that's better than Passion of the Christ, and Mm -hmm. I think even better than uh, Martin Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ. Which is, um,
0: for me, the number one movie about Jesus, but my... Number one movie is the climactic installment of the masterful Three Colors Trilogy by Christoph Kieslowski. It is Three Colors Red, which for me is the greatest of the three movies. Blue is also fantastic. White is actually very different than the other two. But red is, it's incredible. Uh, it is starring Irene Jacob, who for my money is one of the most beautiful women who's ever lived. But take away all of that, she's incredibly... Uh, effective as an actress in this movie. And uh, the sort of concept of the Three Colors Trilogy is he does red, blue, and white, which are the three colors of the French flag. And each color represents a different... um, uh, One of France's revolutionary ideals. I can't... uh, Red, I believe, is fraternity. I, I think blue is liberty and white is equality. But red is about fraternity and sort of your connection to humans and humankind in ways that you don't necessarily even think of but you are a member of the human race and these bonds exist between you and other people even if it's not something you're completely conscious of and for for me Kozlowski is like one of the great visual directors where I mean people don't even need to talk in his movies you sort of just understand by he's just such a humanist filmmaker and I, I think that he had actually retired after making this movie and was not necessarily going to make any more movies, but very tragically, two years after he made this, he died from complications in open heart surgery after suffering a heart attack, and it's just such a great testament to his philosophy on filmmaking and his philosophy towards humanity and mankind. The Three Colors Red was his final movie, and I... You probably should watch them in order if you are to see the three colors trilogy, blue, white, and red. It's good to watch them in that order, but if you were to select one to watch out of all three of them, red is the one you should watch. It's incredibly powerful. It's one of the great visual films ever made. And we were talking about this one of the topics we may do in a future episode is like great four film runs. The final four films by Krzysztof Kozlowski or almost untouchable for me he did the double life of veronique also starring irene jacob and then blue white and red from three colors trilogy it's just the perfect way for one of the great filmmakers of the 20th century to go out christoph kozlovsky have you seen any of his movies
1: like you with pasolini i've never seen any yeah. of his movies and he's so when it's the... your time he to be negligent <laughs> well yep have... he didn't do that many did no, he? No, he didn't no yeah. And he died young. I mean, yes. yesterday was uh, Andre Tarkovsky's birthday. And yes. I saw on a number of lists uh, The Sacrifice, I think, was his last film. And yes. some people think that that's one of the better last films. You know, there were some directors, you know, they were really old and they made a film. Or there were some that, like Tarkovsky and Bob Fossey, did Star 80. Yeah. They were, you know, like in their 50s or 60s when mm. they died. But um, Sort of so, similar yeah, you... tra-
0: tra- career trajectory to Tarkovsky And sort of similar style of filmmaking Tarkovsky is a guy we've hardly talked about On this podcast in any subject
1: Yeah Well, um, do we just want to mention Some other honorable mentions for I have many, many more directorial debuts Yeah, listed. let's yeah, mention uh, some
0: debuts One that was sort of an obvious oversight From both of us is Citizen Kane And one that I think we mentioned uh, In comparison to other movies that are in our debut and we sort of talked about it before. It's one that we both acknowledge its greatness, but it we just simply enjoy other movies more than Citizen Kane.
1: Right. If we're going by favorite films. Yeah. Yeah. So some other ones I wrote down, a lot of comedies, a lot of people, their first, for example, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, the mm-hmm. directorial debut of both Terry Gilliam and the late Terry, Terry Jones. Jones, who died earlier this year. Um, one of my favorite documentaries of all time. Um, and I'm teaching a class in the fall on documentaries is Errol Morris's Gates of Heaven. It was his first film and Roger Ebert put it as one of his 10 favorite films of all time Wow! before. Um, uh, Possibly my favorite film directed by an African-American is Charles Burnett's Killer of Sheep, Uh, which I saw in a class at NYU. Extremely powerful movie. Yeah. Right. Um, one movie, I haven't seen all of his movies, but I actually think maybe my favorite Michael Mann film is his first th- theatrical feature, Thief, starring James Caan. I just really? Think that's You'd say
0: that f- might be your favorite Michael Mann movie?
1: I haven't seen all of them. I've, you know, I haven't seen Collateral or Last of the Mohicans, but um, I love Heat. I'm a big like, Michael Mann fan. For me, Man Heat fan. is
0: like untouchable.
1: Yeah, but it, it, I know it's like the thing of like Thief – does it in like a third, you know, like it, yeah. it's like half an yeah, hour. It's much harsh. more
0: economical. Yes.
1: Yeah. Um, we mentioned the Coen brothers in passing, but blood simple is one of the most assured directorial debuts yes. ever. Um, I love Pee Wee's big adventure. <laughs> honestly, I honestly think it's one of Tim Burton's best films um, to get a female director. And I really like Jane Campion's first feature theatrical film, sweetie, which mm-hmm. is very funny. Um, Lady Bird,
0: Greta Gerwig is one of my favorite movies of this decade.
1: Now, if you want to be technical, she actually co-directed a film before that. Oh, that that doesn't count. Okay. Well, um, just – and then I want to say three great horror films that came out this past decade that were directorial debuts. The Babadook, The Witch, and Get Out are three of the best like modern horror films. Uh, Jennifer Kent, Robert Eggers, and Jordan Peele. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, American Beauty, Sam Mendes, Best Picture winner, right?
1: Yeah, he was super young when he did. That. Well, I don't know how old was he when he did that. I, don't I think, think he... late
0: mid to late twenties. I'm pretty sure.
1: Okay, Um, but yeah, I just was looking over – I mean I don't need to list everyone, but I just taught it in my action class, but Speed is just such a fun movie. Talk about
0: Assured, uh, directorial debut.
1: He had a lot of experience as a cinematographer, most famously
0: for The Hunt for Red October and Die Hard, I'm pretty sure.
1: Right. What are some on your list? I just rambled off a bunch.
0: Barry Levinson, Diner.
1: That's a fun movie.
0: Uh, Judd Apatow, 40-Year-Old Virgin.
1: Yeah, I had that on my list, yeah. Uh, that was the first R-rated movie I ever saw in a theater.
0: I didn't see it in a the theater, but that was one of the first R-rated comedies I saw. That and the sort of the golden age of R-rated comedies with like Wedding Crashers and then the other uh, Judd Apatow movies following that, like uh, Knocked Up. And he didn't direct. Um, super bad but it's very much a judd apatow movie
1: right there was this time i think in the 90s and early 2000s where there were mostly pg-13 comedies you Uh know jim carrey movies adam sandler movies and then judd apatow brought in a new era Mm. you know and then there were also films like borat and wedding crashers Mm -hmm. but um yeah the 400
0: blows which we mentioned was very close to making my list
1: yeah uh, District uh,
0: 9, uh, Neil Blomkamp has not made a movie as good since he made that
1: District 9? Yes Yeah, I don't like that movie What? I wrote a whole you don't paper. like
0: District 9?
1: Yeah. No, I, I wrote a whole paper about the, how the film doesn't make sense like it starts out as this fake documentary and then it just drops that and You know, it's like, well, you,
0: you're kind of right about that You, you are right about that yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. One I'm surprised absolutely- neither of us mentioned is Gwen Tarantino, Reservoir Dogs
1: yeah, I've actually only seen the movie once, and I really like it, but I just – it's not my favorite of his movies. I, I had it on my big list. It actually of,
0: feels uh, a little bit dated when you watch it now compared to like Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown especially.
1: It feels like a young guy's movie. Yeah, being but, John Malkovich, um, Spike Do you Jones? mind if I mention some uh, – yeah. Yeah. Um you mind if I mention some other – I didn't have that many other last films listed, but can I mention a few? Oh, yeah. Okay, so Douglas Sirk's Imitation of Life, yes. one of his best movies was his last film, uh, retired and uh, lived many more years, but that was his last film. Um, it's not my favorite Kubrick film, and I've only seen it once, but Eyes Wide Shut yes. is, um, you know, that was that's one where the director wasn't planning on making that his final film. He only was, was planning on doing
0: Artificial Intelligence, I know, directly after that. Right.
1: Right. And then uh, I mentioned in passing that I saw uh, Robert Altman's A Prairie Home Companion, mm-hmm. which is just a lovely movie. I mean, it's not, you know, MASH or McCabe and Mrs. Yeah. Miller or Nashville, but uh, it's it's or just even Gosser really...
0: Park, which I think was the second to the last movie.
1: Well, he did one called The Company, but uh, I mean, A Prairie Home Companion. I just want to read that cast off. Have you actually seen that movie? No, I haven't. OK, so it's based I on the radio. I distinctly
0: remember when it came out. I remember the the preview for it when it came out.
1: Yeah, so here's the cast of the movie: uh, Woody Harrelson, Tommy Lee Jones, Kevin Kline, Lindsay Lohan, Virginia Madsen, John C. Riley, Maya Rudolph, Meryl Streep, Lily Tomlin, L.Q. Jones, and then the creator of the original radio broadcast, Garrison Keillor, is the star of it. But that's a incredible line oh, of actors. Really yeah, and uh, Paul Thomas Anderson was actually on the set of the movie sometime uh because he was going to take over if altman ended up not being able to finish the movie because he wasn't in best yeah
0: i know that altman was very much like a a mentor to paul thomas anderson i did not know that though
1: and then there's a connection too that his future wife maya rudolph is uh, in the movie oh yeah uh
0: another one you haven't seen sergio leone's once upon a time in america from
1: 1984 right um like we were saying, a lot of the great directors from the Golden Age of Hollywood mm-hmm. wouldn't fit on either list because their first film is some obscure silent movie that nobody has seen hardly, and their last film is some me- mediocre film from like 1970 yes. <laughs> <laughs> that you know nobody has seen or nobody remembers very much these days. But um, I've seen some people defend John Ford's last film. Uh, it's called Seven Women, I think. I have not seen it. And- no, I haven't either I haven't seen Hitchcock's last film Family Plot I've heard that's fun though yeah I, know, I actually like...
0: have seen that one it's as far as Hitchcock goes there's like a definite sort of dive after you'd sort of say the birds like Topaz and Frenzy, Torn Curtain. Oh, yeah, really good, Frenzy though. you would say is the return to form and if that had been his last movie probably it might have made my top three but but, but yeah Family um, Plot yeah, just I... it's sort of unfortunate that that was his last movie because you think of Hitchcock is being the ultimate master, but yeah, I'm just looking at Howard Hawks's filmography here. Like his first movie is The Road to Glory from 1976. Never heard of that. Probably will never see it. And his final movie, 1970, Rio Lobo, seems like it's just sort of an average John Wayne movie.
1: Well, I mean, I think sometimes directors, they, you know, I understand Tarantino's thing of like, I don't want to be one of these great directors that churns out five movies in my last five movies so yeah,
0: i mean even someone like Terrence Malick, you'd say that his filmography has been watered down a little bit by the output that he's put out and it's it's amazing to think of how long it took between like days of heaven and the thin red line that you were like hey slow down a little bit here terry but that's almost how it feels
1: well and then there's the thing of you know maybe Woody allen's Ratio would be better if he didn't do one every single year uh-huh. But still you get a match point or a midnight in Paris or a blue jasmine, blue jasmine And yeah. you know, that's just the way he is like in Clint Eastwood, too is like not everything he's done has been fantastic in the last 15 years, but he has done uh, You know million-dollar baby and letters from Iwo Jima. I think uh, Gran Torino, uh, you know, some of them aren't his like top five best movies ever, but I think Changeling's really good. Yes. I, I, I'm a big defender of the mule as being no, so really good. so am I.
0: When I hear yeah. people say, like, that was awful, I'm like, w- did we watch the same movie?
1: <laughs> yeah, I love that it was on uh Caillou de Cinema's top ten of the year. Yeah. I just think that's so... It's, like, such an American movie, but that's what they do. <laughs> but... Uh, Can I mention three films that I really like that were the only films by that director? And so it could be on either list because it's okay. And all three of these directors are no longer living. So uh, they are certainly not going to make another movie. Um, Charles Lawton's The Night of the Hunter, one of the greatest films ever, period. Um, But incredible. By one of the greatest actors ever. Right. And was Um,
0: panned when it came out, right?
1: Yeah. Sometimes you just wonder like, what movie were they watching? What <laughs> yeah. what was in their head? But um, a movie from 1970 uh, that I think is really uh, a powerful movie. One of the best serial killer films ever. The honeymoon killers uh, 1970 uh, Leonard Castle. It's in the criterion collection. And uh, I remember Patton Oswalt uh, being a big fan of it and talking about it when he was talking about the criterion collection. Um, it, it's, It's such a a budget, almost looks like an Ed Wood movie in that like you can tell, oh, this is just like there was no sets hardly. But it doesn't feel, um, you know, it's actually really incredibly shot. And the black and white is uh, very evocative. But and then um, in my queer cinema class last semester, I taught the 1986 film Parting Glances. And the director of the film, Bill Sherwood, died of AIDS. And um, it was the first film, uh, Steve Buscemi's first film. And it's just a really good comedy drama about gay life in New York City in the 80s and, you know, dealing with AIDS and it's just a uh, it's one of the best. Oh, really? Uh, it's about AIDS? Era. Was he?
0: Yeah. Did he, had well, he already contracted the virus by the time he made it or was that just a very I, tragic coincidence?
1: I Yeah, I don't think he had yet because I, I think it was a number of years later. He died like five years at least. But. Um, it was Steve Buscemi's, uh, first film and his, his character, uh, Buscemi's character has AIDS in the film and it's just a, it's a really funny film and a moving film and it's just really well-written. Um, also another movie that's like right about 90 minutes. Um, so, uh. That's uh, It's hard to get. It's like on DVD and it's like pretty expensive on Amazon. It's like random, you know, hard to get movie. But I, that's one I'd love the Criterion Collection to release. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so The Night of the Hunter, The Honeymoon Killers, Parting Glances, only feature film those directors made. Um, I'll, I highly recommend all three of those.
0: Well, yeah, I th- I think this was a good topic for us. Uh, you let me indulge my sports fandom on the last one with the top five or six sports movies. So We did our top five debuts and our top – three final films we are yet to determine what our next topic is going to be but i'm sure we could do
1: the four in a row movies
0: i think for that one we might not necessarily rank them it's more of just an appreciation right but yeah there will certainly not be any new movie reviews in the near future which is tragic for us and for every one of members of our audience but thank you for listening and we will be back with you guys next time